when our Lord Jesus Christ clearly is revealed as the triumphant King of all of the earth. You have to think, how will the earth be during that time? What is the order of things to come? And we have seen over the past year in our study of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the presentation of our Lord when God intervenes in human history. And we are quickly coming to the end. In fact, in chapter 19, we will see the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we reach chapter 20, you will see Satan, who will be bound for the duration of the 1,000-year earthly reign of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, chapters 21 and 22 unfold for us the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. And through our study of the book of Revelation, if, if we are to think chronologically as you think about the tribulation, then chapter 19 should follow chapter 16. Because at the end of chapter 16 was the final blowing of the, or, or the final outpouring of the last bowl of God's wrath. But between chapter 16 and chapter 19, we have this interlude. We have chapters 17 and chapter 18, an intermission, if you will, an interlude, at least in the telling of the, the details of what's happening in the tribulation. This is not an interlude, an intermission in the chronology, in the outworking of the seven years of the tribulation, but this is simply uh, an interlude in the details of the chronology. Chapter 17, one of the seven angels pours out or who one of the seven angels, I should say, who poured out one of the seven bowls of wrath of God, takes John to show him the, the judgment of the great harlot. We studied that in detail. The one that sits on many waters, the many waters being the, the nations and the people and the tongues and the tribes of the world. And then in chapter 18, another angel will show John the judgment of this great city. And both of those things are known by the name Babylon. The great harlot is the false religious system. It is religious Babylon. And the great city is the center of the commercial life of the earth. Now, this morning, as we think about these things, I want you to understand something that that this is going to be more like a history lesson than it will be an expository sermon from the text this morning because there's, there's so much here that we have to understand by way of, of what's happening on the earth that, that to jump right into it may cause us to be confused. And so I want us to spend our time this morning not really so much discussing the text itself, although we will certainly be referring to it, but rather on some very important background information that uh, will help us stay clear of any error as to what this city is. First, we have already been introduced to the destruction of Babylon twice in our study up to this point. You may remember back in chapter 14 and verse 8, as the 
witness of God is going throughout the earth. You have the 144,000 who are witnesses of God during the tribulation time. You have an angel flying in mid-heaven, verse 6, who has the eternal gospel and he is preaching the gospel and every tribe and every tongue and every people is hearing the gospel with a loud voice as he's telling them to fear God and to give God glory. And then in verse 8, you have this other angel. And this other angel comes with this massive announcement. And the announcement is simply this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It is quite a proclamation. It is the proclamation of the destruction of all that is known as Babylon. And then you turn over to chapter 16. And in chapter 16 that we've already studied, the seventh bowl is poured out. And John records these words in verse 19. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. We understand that to be referring to Jerusalem. We went into that as we were talking about that. And then it says this after that, And Babylon the great was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So you have fallen, fallen is Babylon the great in chapter 14 and verse 8. You have this reference in chapter 16 during the final wrath of God's judgment being poured out into the bull judgments that the remembrance before God of Babylon is now brought before him. And then you come to chapter 18 and verse 1 and 2 and you hear these words. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So here again, we hearken back to what we have already heard in chapter 14 and verse 8, what has been referred to already in chapter 16 and verse 19, now referred to again here in chapter 18 verses 1 and 2. These are words we have heard before. Fallen. A word that simply means complete destruction. Complete and utter devastation. So much so that God even says that she will be remembered no more. Chapter 18. It will be so much so that There will be no longer anything happening in her anymore. Fallen. There was complete destruction. And we need to understand something. When God destroys this great city, write it down in your margin, put it somewhere there, lock it in the memory of your mind. When God destroys it, it will not come over a period of time. The destruction of this city will not come as a continuous assault over weeks and months to undermine its reality and thereby cause it to collapse over years. That will not happen. No, the destruction of this city will come suddenly. It will come instantaneously and it will come, in fact, in one hour. Verse 10 of chapter 18 Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Also in verse 17, for in one hour such great 
wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, at the end of the verse, for in one hour she has been laid waste. When God judges this city, it will come in a moment. In ancient history, the city of Babylon is a very prominent city. In fact, the name Babylon, you might just know this by way of your own Bible trivia. The name Babylon is used more times in the Bible than any other city except the city of Jerusalem. It is the most well Recorded name in Scripture when it comes to identifying a city next to Jerusalem. More than 260 times it is mentioned in the entire Bible. For example, Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 alone mention it 37 times. It was the city, of course, we know of the first great earthly ruler. We know his name. We know him from Scripture. It was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the first great ruler. He had the vision of the great statue of which he was the one who was ruling the day at the time. The ancient city of Babylon, as you and I know it from Scripture, was the city of the king who destroyed Judea, the one who destroyed Jerusalem, the one who ransacked and caused the temple of Solomon to be destroyed. Of course, we know ancient Babylon to be the city in which the Babylonian captivity took place of Israel in 586 B.C. God used Babylon. Babylon was an instrument in the hand of Almighty God as a a chastening one, a great avenger of the sins, if you will, of God's people. But the interesting thing about Babylon is that Babylon was more vile. Babylon was more wicked and more merciless than any other nation that God had used. And God was going to judge them at his own hand. We heard about that in chapter 16 and verse 19. Sins of Babylon came into the remembrance of God wasn't as if God had forgotten their sin. It wasn't as if somehow God just said, oh yeah, I forgot about Babylon. No, but rather chapter 16 and verse 19 simply is referring to the reality that now it was time for their judgment. Now the reality of them being judged came before God. And it was time for them to be judged. Remember from our study previously, this was the study that, or this was the city that was originally built by Nimrod, the grandson of, or the great grandson of Noah, the grandson of Ham. This was the city of Babel originally, built in order that man's strength and man's ingenuity would be shining forth, that man could, in fact, reach God on his own was the city which was the birthplace of all false religion as we see today, the religion of man's effort to reach God. That man could do it on his own. And man throughout the centuries has perpetuated that through a myriad of names. You can call it whichever you want from from Buddhism all the way down to Roman Catholicism and everything in between, but it's all the same. It is, I reach God on my own. 
And even in religions that assume that Jesus Christ is part of it, it isn't Jesus Christ alone, it's Jesus Christ plus my efforts which make me right before God or which allow me to reach God on my own. It's all of the same thing. It's always born in Babel. The ancient worship of self. And it was the city born out of that sinful idolatry was a city that was the birthplace of all that false religion. And it, the ancient city was used often or seen often in Old Testament prophecy. And I want to just show us this really quickly. For example, go back to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 5, there is prophecy concerning Israel and concerning Babel. Beginning in verse 5 and going down to the end of the chapter in verse 11, Zechariah has a vision. He has a vision of an ephah. An ephah is simply a measurement of of weight or... uh, a measurement of volume, and ephah was, was equivalent to a bushel. And he has this vision of this ephah, or, or even really a, a kind of a basket that would hold a bushel, that kind of thing. And so it, this vision is about a measurement, if you will. And in Zechariah's vision, the measurement has in it wickedness. And this wickedness is being taken to a place in the land of Shinar, that it might be poured out to build a house there. Notice verse 5, the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah going forth. And again he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. So there's this ephah, this Measurement like a bushel, and inside is this this contents, and over the top is this lead uh, lid, uh, almost identifying the reality that this couldn't come out unless the lead was lifted, this heavy uh, thing placed on top of it. And so there's this lead cover, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephod, it says in verse 7. And then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast a lead weight on its opening. And I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming out with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of the stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Where are they taking this wickedness? And he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Shinar is the region in which the city of Babel was built. So this is the house of Babylon. And in Babylon, in the land of Shinar, is set a wicked center, a wicked house of the social and commercial life of the world. And it is there that this house is to be judged by God. 
Now go back to Revelation chapter 18. Because I want to highlight something for us here as we look at all of this. Did you notice that Babylon the city is judged by God himself directly? As I read it. I point this out because there is a a difference between chapter 17 and chapter 18. And this is where some of the confusion comes in, where, where sometimes you may read in some commentaries and some interpretations where people believe this is the same Babylon in chapter 17 as it is in chapter 18, and I don't believe that to be the case. There is a difference between chapter 17 and chapter 18, and this difference has... I think caused many over the years to be confused about what is happening in these chapters. In chapter 17, the judgment of the great harlot, the religious side of this identity of Babylon, which we understand from our previous study to be the destruction of false religion. We looked at that at length when we studied that chapter. And the reason that destruction comes is so that the beast will be propelled to his apex whereby the world then will worship the beast. Remember that? And all of that takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. When the son of lawlessness raises himself up in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. All that takes place midpoint. So chapter 17 is looking back chronologically in the chronology of the seven-year tribulation back to the midpoint, back to the destruction of the religious, the the false religious side whereby the, the, as we saw in chapter 17, verse 16, the ten horns which which you saw in the beast, they, these hate the harlot and they make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. That's, that's the midpoint of the tribulation as they come together against the false religion so that the beast will be elevated to his place where he can now be worshipped alone as the one who proclaims himself to even be God. Then, in chapter 18, the judgment of the great city, also known as Babylon, happens at the end of the seventh bowl judgment. Here's why I believe it's two judgments. First, as I said already, there are two different entities being judged. False religion and the commercial side. One is a religious system. Chapter 17 makes that clear. Chapter 18, it's clear that this is commerce or a city. It's not religion that is the subject of chapter 18. But secondly, there are two different agents being used in the judgments. It is true that both judgments are from God. It is true that both judgments are from God ultimately, that God is ultimately the one distributing or or handing out judgments, whether God is the active arm in judgment or whether God uses a secondary agent uh, like the hands of wicked men that killed Christ. God was still the one ultimately behind all of that in the sense of carrying out what his purpose plan was through that. So it was ultimately the judgment of God, and that would be true also in chapter 17 and 18, both. They are ultimately both the judgment of God, but that doesn't negate the fact that these agents are different. 
Chapter 17, remember, God uses the beast and the ten kings as his agents. Remember that in chapter 17, verse 16. I just read that. They are the agents of God by which God brings about the destruction of the false system of religion. They carry out his divine purposes, even though they think they're working according to their own purposes. And verse 17 of chapter 17 clearly tells us that, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. But in chapter 18, the judgment of the city comes directly from the hand of God. In other words, this is direct divine judgment from the hand of God, similar to that which destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, similar to that which destroyed Nineveh. Notice in chapter 18 and verse 5, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 8, for this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will burn, be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Pronouncement is the same word. You could translate it judgment. God has judged with judgment for you against her. So this is divine judgment coming from God directly that comes upon this city even before the earth splitting earthquake that comes under the final bull judgment. Furthermore, if you look back at verse 9, chapter 18, we know it can't be the same judgment because under chapter 17, the ten horns and the beast are used in the judgment. And here in verse 9 of chapter 18, the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously here with her weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So certainly they're not the ones being used as an instrument in God's hands to bring judgment upon this city. The fact that they are lamenting over her clearly shows that they are not the agents of her destruction. There's a third reason that I believe these are two judgments, and it's the timing of them, the timing. Remember, the first judgment takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation so that in that doing, the Antichrist, the beast, can reach his apex of power. But here in chapter 18, the destruction of the city takes place at the very end of the tribulation when under the seventh bowl of judgment, as we read earlier in chapter 16 and verse 19, Babylon the Great is remembered before God. When religion is destroyed, it will come over a period of time near the midpoint of the tribulation, apexing in the point where the beast will raise himself up as God. But here in chapter 18, it happens in one hour. So there seems to be, at least from the context of the vision that John lays out here, there seems to be at least a three and a half year period between these two judgments. So the destruction of the city of Babylon is an altogether different category than the destruction of the false religion of chapter 17, even though they are both known 
by the name Babylon. It is God who destroys this Babylon. This is an intervention of God. It is something he does directly. But that only leads to further questions. And we must now ask the question, is this Babylon an actual rebuilt city? Or is it just symbolism? Is this an actual rebuilt city? Or or is it just symbolism that equates to some kind of global economic system? And not a real city at all. Is this just some kind of prophetic symbolic language that refers to this economic reality as as a city that comes crashing down? In other words, chapter 17 clearly shows the destruction of the false religious system. And with the collapse of the false religious system would come the massive economic impact that would the earth would face because of the wealth of the religions of the world, especially the Roman Catholic Church that I shared with us last time we were in this. All of that certainly would cause some economic problems, and maybe some say that is really what's being pictured here. It's, it's called a city, but that's just symbolic language to refer to the collapse that comes under the religious system. This is just the economic side. Is that what this is, or is this a literal city? These are some of the challenges that you come to when you read this text. And as I've already said, I believe this is a city, and I want to help us understand why. And then I just want to give us a framework this morning. We're really not even going to get into this text. I just want to give us a framework for how we're going to to study this over the next several weeks. I believe Babylon is a literal or will be a literal city and it will not be the city of Rome. It will be a literal city, but it will not be, as many think, the city of Rome. Many, of course, think it's going to be Rome because it will be a city set on seven hills. People call Rome the city set on seven hills, but we clearly know it wasn't seven hills they were talking about there. These seven heads in chapter 17 and verse 9 The seven heads are seven mountains on which this woman sits. That's why many equate it to Rome. But they are seven kings. Those are what those seven hills are referring to. It's not literal mountains there. So it cannot be and will not be, I don't believe, Rome at all. Since the false religious side of Babylon will so closely resemble what we currently see under the false religion of Roman Catholicism, With all of its attempts to unify every religion under itself, remember I called that religious absorption. They're not trying to change everybody's religion per se. They're just trying to absorb them into this one ecumenical religious system. And because of that, many believe that Rome will become this powerhouse. Rome will become, they think, this city that is prominent in the days of the tribulation. And they see with that, because of their ties to the Vatican City even today, that it seems to both carry the religious element and the city of Rome would be the economic element known as Babylon. And while that may be attractive to interpret it that way, there's no solid biblical basis for that interpretation. And it cannot be done 
that way if we remain faithful to what the text actually says. In order to come to that conclusion, you have to do what we like to call spiritual gymnastics. You have to do a lot of spiritual hoop jumping and spiritualizing of the text to come to those conclusions. So while the kingdom of the beast has links to the old Roman Empire, the beast's empire is much wider in scope, much greater in power than the Roman Empire ever was. So we cannot assume, as some Bible commentators have done, that Babylon is some kind of biblical code name for Rome. It's not a code name at all. You don't have to have the secret decoder ring to figure it out. It's not a code name for Rome at all. There's no hint in the words of Scripture that Babylon is none other than a literal city. And the existence of this city is not based on religion. The existence of this city is not based even on politics. The existence of this city is based on economics. Economics. This is the economic powerhouse of the world during the last half of the tribulation. And we clearly see that from the words of chapter 18 that this city will be centralized, be centralized to a place that is the economic and global center of the world. Look at verse 3. All the nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her immorality. All the nations are involved in this economic uh, interaction with this city. Verse 9. All the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality. So the rulers of the day during that time under even the headship and rulership of the Antichrist are, are interacting with this city on an economic level. Verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep. And mourn because they have no longer any means through which they can make their sales. Their cargoes are going unbought. And then in verses 17 and 18, And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. So the entire earth from the kings on down are are interacting in an economic way with this one city, Babylon. And so when you think about Babylon, when you think about the economic side of Babylon, it's very difficult to explain the destruction and the subsequent desolation that comes to the, to the place on earth after this destruction happens, that there will be nothing else ever built there. It's very hard to explain that both destruction and the desolation of some site unless an actual city is involved. How do you explain that if this is just symbolism? And the this city would be the financial power center for the world. And so when God calls this city Babylon, it is difficult to take it any other way. When common sense makes sense, as a principle of interpretation, when common sense makes sense, then don't seek any other sense, lest you be seeking nonsense. And that's what we have here. The common sense makes sense. Now, ancient Babylon was located on the banks of the Euphrates River. We've heard about the Euphrates already. And if you know your recent history at all, then you also know that 
Babylon, over the years, has suffered much decay. It has suffered even destruction, although it has never suffered complete desolation. It has always had its resurgence, always had its place where it rises up again. It has never been completely abandoned. In fact, if you know your recent history, as recent as Saddam Hussein, you know that he was attempting to rebuild Babylon before his demise. He was attempting to rebuild the city of Babylon. That's where it's located. And so while you may read your Old Testament and you read the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah and the Old Testament prophecies of Jeremiah that speak of the destruction of Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51, you go there and you read Babylon and the destruction of Babylon and how God is destroying Babylon. There is, you must remember, there is and there almost always is when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, a near fulfillment of that prophecy as well as a far fulfillment of that prophecy. So when you read about the history of Babylon in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14 and Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, you must remember that there was a destruction under those prophecies in the near future, but there is also a destruction to come in the far future and the desolation will come in the far future, but never came in the near future of Babylon. And so I believe chapter 18 of Revelation presents for us the divine and direct judgment of God upon a rebuilt and restored Babylon, the city. This is why I have that as our title, the destruction of Babylon, the city, when God intervenes in history. I believe the scripture reveals that this city will be rebuilt and it will be rebuilt rapidly. And the meteoric rise of the the beast to world domination will be, in fact, matched by the rapid building of this city as the commercial center of the world and his empire. I believe it will be rebuilt right there where the ancient Babylon is, right there on the site of the Euphrates River. I think that's what we're hearing about here as John sees the unfolding of this event as we hear it from the words of John as he is seeing it and he is recording it faithfully for us. So with all of that as our background, all of that is just introductory material. All of that is kind of a history class. Let's now begin to just uncover, or at least let me give you an outline of chapter 18 as we're going to frame our thoughts over the next several weeks. And I want to frame our thoughts under these four headings. Number one will be the verdict upon Babylon. The verdict upon Babylon or the verdict upon this city or, or the blow of God upon the city or the strike or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's the verdict upon them, verses 1 to 3. Woe, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, verse 2 says. And then secondly, we're going to look at the judgment from heaven. The judgment from heaven, verses 4 through 8. So there is this verdict given and there's this judgment that is pronounced. 
And third will be the cries of those upon the earth. The largest part of this entire chapter is those who are lamenting the reality of her destruction. In verses 9 through 20, we see that. We go from the kings to the merchants to the, to the ship guys to all the way down to the, to the lowest of people, the sailors who make their living in the waters, the, 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 the passengers on their ships. They're all crying for this city. Verses 9 through 20. And then verse 21 through the end of the chapter, you have this symbolized picture of the devastation of this entire city. And the repetition that goes on in those final verses is that it will no longer be, there will, there, there will not be found any longer in you these things. And you see this no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer, no longer, repeated over and over again. Utter destruction, utter desolation. So you have the verdict upon Babylon, the judgment that comes from heaven itself, the cries of the earth, and then the symbolism, this symbolic devastation that's pictured in the angel throwing the millstone into the water. And we all know when a large rock is thrown into the water, it sinks to the bottom and is not seen again. So that's the framework with which we're going to work through this passage. But before we close our time this morning, I want to answer one last question. Why would God destroy Babylon? Why is God going to destroy her with such utter destruction? We have the answer alluded to for us in verse 8. Chapter 18 and verse 8, and I think it's pertinent that we think about this in light of our own lives and our own sin. Chapter 18, verse 8 says, For this reason, in one day her plague will come. For this reason. For what reason? Why is God going to destroy Babylon? For what reason? In one day does her plagues come? And we know the answer to the question because God has given us verse 7. This is the reason. Notice verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. You say, well, that sounds pretty interesting. It's for that reason. But what does all that mean? Well, here's the point. Why is God going to judge Babylon as he's going to judge Babylon? I'll tell you why. Because verse 7 clearly shows it. In arrogant pride, in absolute, audacious, arrogant pride standing before God, this city sees herself as the mother and mistress of the world. She says, I am queen In fact, we saw earlier the religious side of it says, I'm the queen of heaven. This is deliberate and defiant challenge to God. That's what this is. You say, how so? Well, because this is a defiant 
deliberate challenge to God to fulfill what he has already said through the Old Testament prophets about her. She says in verse 7, I am not a widow. I will never see mourning or, or sorrow. I'll never see that. That's arrogant pride. You say, why so? We'll go back to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah prophesies about Babylon, about her arrogance. In Isaiah chapter 47, beginning in verse 7. Yet you said, this is Babylon speaking, yet you said, God recounting what you said, I shall be queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know loss of children. But these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you, for you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction, about which you do not know, will come on you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells and in your sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become stubble. Fire burns them. They, they cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, no fire to sit before. So have those come become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you and from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. You see, that's Isaiah's prophecy concerning Babylon. And surely the destruction of Babylon has come already in the times of history, but not to the utter destruction. And therefore Isaiah is speaking here both near and far to the destruction that will come. And in Revelation chapter 18, she is saying once again, here's why I'm destroying you because in your direct defiance, in your direct arrogance against the very word of God, and even though Babylon will once again in the future seize her power over the nations in direct defiance against God, she says, you cannot fulfill your word. In fact, did you notice in Isaiah chapter 47 that twice she says, I am. And there is none like me. Who said that in Scripture? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees picked up stones and tried to kill him because 
They knew what I am meant. I am is that little phrase in in the Greek language that means very existence itself. Moses said to God, "Who, who should I tell him sent you? And God says, you tell him I am sent you. Very existence itself, the one who creates, the one who is uncreated sent you. You tell him that one sent you. And Christ comes along and says, I am. And they, they want to kill Christ because very existence is there. And when the disciples are in the boat and they're scared of the storm and Christ walks on the water and he says, listen, guys, why are you scared? I am is with you. Listen, they were frightened to tears because very existence was there in the boat with them. Here Babylon is saying the same thing. Listen, I am and there is no one besides me. This is absolute arrogant challenge to God to fulfill what he says that he would do according to Isaiah chapter 47 and bring them to utter destruction. I will not be a widow. I will never see mourning Listen, God will not be mocked. God will never be mocked. His word will come to pass. There are times, I think, folks, as evangelicals, that we doubt that. That we doubt that in our own lives. Surely we intellectually know it. But far too often we live as if it's not a reality. We live just like Babylon will say in their arrogant pride. Even there may be some here right now saying the very same thing. I don't know. I don't doubt what God says. Really? The reality is that we do. You say, how so? Because we sin so easily. We sin so easily. God tells us to obey His Word and we don't. That's arrogant pride, just like that's deliberate defiance against God to say, God, go ahead and do what your word says. I don't think it will come to pass. I'm going to go do what I want. God tells us to be devoted to his word, and we aren't devoted to his word. We rarely sometimes read our Bibles. We rarely are with the people of God. We rarely spend time in the spiritual disciplines of life. And we are, in in a sense, arrogantly saying to God, just like Babylon, listen, I doubt your word is true. God tells us to love one another and we love ourselves more. We intellectually know the truth. We intellectually hear the truth. But in very practical ways, we, like Babylon, defy his word. In the outworkings of our lives, we're saying just what Babylon is saying. Just what Satan said in the garden. God, you really don't mean what you said. You really don't mean that. You see, if we believe that in, in a way that it was really part of us, we wouldn't so easily sin. We wouldn't so easily go down those roads. We would know God by what He says and say, well, I believe what He says. I know it's true, and therefore I will not go down that road. I will not defy who He is. He is not going to be mocked. Arrogant pride defies God to act out our sin. Because of the arrogant pride of Babylon, God will act against it. There's a difference, though. The difference between our sin and acting out against God and what Babylon is doing. 
It's not a difference by way of the heinousness of the sin itself, for sure, against God, but it is different by the way of judgment against it. And that we can be very glad for. Because when God destroys Babylon, everyone there and every part of it will be unsavable. Isaiah 47 and verse 15, there is none to save you. It's a very powerful word. Isaiah is saved by the same grace in Christ that we are saved by. And Isaiah is saying through prophecy, as God has told him, not even Christ will save you. Their hearts have been hardened to the point of no saving. But thanks be to God that right now, right here, in our time, our relationship with God is savable. These words to Babylon here that there is no one to save really don't apply to us here and now because there is someone to save. For the true Christian who sins, for you and I as Christians, and we, and we arrogantly act out in sin, defying God and saying, yeah, your word really isn't true. Christ has paid the price and restoration is available in our relationship with God as it's broken through our sin and, and it's restorable through our confession and repentance of that sin. It isn't that we lose our salvation when we sin, but certainly the relationship between us and the Father is is strained because of that and we don't want to obey, but when we confess and repent, we, we desire to walk in obedience now before God and God forgives us of our sins in Christ and we now are restored. And for the unsaved, God says today is the day of salvation. That salvation comes by faith. Because by entrusting yourself to Christ through, through genuine confession of your sin and repentance. It's the same restoration. Whether you're this side of salvation or the unsaved side of salvation, restoration is the same thing through confession and repentance. And both in Christ. The only thing that will keep someone from a relationship with God through Christ, guess what, is arrogant pride. That's it. It's the only thing that keeps someone from Christ. Their arrogant pride to say, no, I will not bow the knee. I will not come to you. I will not believe you. I will not entrust myself to the one you said I should trust in. I think I'm okay. My arrogant pride says, I'm okay. I will not mourn. God says, if you glorify yourself, you'll pay the price. Babylon is arrogantly defying God. And they one day are going to pay the ultimate price for that arrogance. But Isaiah says in chapter 66, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll be contrite in spirit, and if you'll tremble at His word, then you'll be to the one to whom God will look. And by faith in Jesus Christ, to the one whom God looks, he will grant you mercy and grace and restoration. Isaiah, the prophet in chapter 48, beginning in verse 12, promises deliverance to Israel. Listen to me, he says, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he. 
I am the first. I'm also the last. My hand founded the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. So assemble yourselves and listen. And in verse 17, he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you would have paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being would be like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. He says, go forth from Babylon. Flee from them. Declare the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Says, Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. On and on again, Isaiah prophesies about the salvation that you can have in Christ. The Redeemer, the true I Am. So if we were going to gain anything this morning from our time just in Revelation chapter 18, we should gain this. Arrogant pride brings destruction. But if you'll humble yourself before a holy God, He will restore you. Let's pray. Father, this morning in our time, I know it's been somewhat of a a history lesson, really. But you know all these things. You know exactly where you would have us go. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it, even in sections of Scripture, which come across at least at initial look to be rather confusing. Your word is clear. It is true. It is altogether right. And Lord, we see in the coming days the destruction of Babylon the city and the heart that's behind that. And certainly we can see even the same patterns at times in our own heart. Forgive us when we live like that, Lord. Thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we rest Thank you that even in our sin we can have a restoration with you that comes through confession and repentance. That our sin and destruction is not permanent if we know Jesus Christ. He paid the ultimate price. He faced the fierce wrath poured out by you upon him so that we might have life in his name. Lord, we pray for those who do not know Christ, those who are still arrogantly defiant of you and want to defy your word. We even pray for those who claim to know Christ who are walking in sin. Lord, we pray that you would crush them. That you would cause them to see their sin for what it is to turn from it and rejoice in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ by walking in obedience to you. Thank you for the book of Revelation and what we are learning about the future. Help us to not be alarmed, but help us to rejoice in the reality of Jesus Christ as our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.